Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug and cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to Let's Talk Rare. This is the second part of our patient empowerment podcast, and I'm joined by Neil Bertelson, Sophie Schmitz, Lawrence Willard, and my co-host Georgie Rack. In the previous episode, we discussed what is patient empowerment and the challenges for drug developers in the ultra-rare space. Let's start the second half of our podcast by asking a really important question which is why should manufacturers, payers and regulators and HGA bodies involve and listen to patients? What do patients bring to the table? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to start that one off. From a HGA perspective, I mean, we've been working in this area for 15, 20 years now, um, convincing HGA bodies to involve um, patients in their, um, in their decision-making process. And the way that we look at it is, is to improve the quality of those decisions. So it's, it's for us, it's very much important that we don't say involving patients always leads to a yes. It's actually having as many inputs and really understanding that patient perspective um, to understand what is the best decision we can make today with all the available evidence, including the patient evidence. And that applies just as much to when you're designing a clinical program. But even before then, you know, you're a company and maybe you've got four or five assets that you could take forward, but you can only afford to take one of them forward. So which one do you take forward? It's a common problem or common decision-making process. How can you make that basic decision without understanding how patients experience that particular disease? How do you know which one to take forward, which attributes patients would most value and therefore the system would most value at a later date? And so basic questions multiple times throughout that process are needed to ensure that you're on the right track and that you build the best possible evidence base that's not just answering the needs of doctors or the healthcare system, but also the needs of patients. I would, um, I would follow Neil there. I think, you know, experience today demonstrates the sort of patients' contribution to the discovery, development and evaluation of medicines enriches the quality of the evidence and the opinion available while increasing transparency, trust and mutual respect between those stakeholders. But also more importantly, I think we also have the same rights to engage in those activities and processes as other stakeholders. I think that's really important to remember and also promote within communities. And I think as many touch points, you know, across the process of medicines R&D. And I think from the very beginning, setting research priorities. And I think one of the best initiatives, kind of multi-stakeholder initiatives I've been involved with was the James Linda Lines Priority Setting Partnerships, the PSPs, and they've done this across a range of, of diseases. And my particular one was about inherited bleeding disorders, but that was a two and a half year process. So it was lengthy and took a lot of energy, time and commitment, but actually we established the top 10 priorities that was informed from the community, as well as the clinical community, the research community. So again, really sort of collaborative process and there's a model to define those research priorities. And my last point there, I'd also say is that embedding sort of engagement cultures and practices 
for philosophical and political reasons isn't enough, isn't enough, sorry, without um, assessing its effect and impact to learn how to enhance the process. Um, and again, I think there was a really good article actually in The Lancet from 2021 by Campbell and colleagues where they argue for an evidence-based evaluation of its benefit benefits, but also possible harms. And, and obviously it's really challenging, I think, to uh, you know, even know how to evaluate evaluate those kind of specific contributions of patients and how they're swaying decisions. Um, so I certainly haven't got the answer there, but I did think it's really important to actually understand the outcomes of those of that participation, and again, how these institutions can look to improve those engagement processes for the future. And how about the implications for not using the patient voice? What happens then? The world is changing. If you're not involving patients, you're missing a massive opportunity to really understand what matters to patients, not just as you're developing a medicine, but as that medicine goes to decision makers. Decision makers are speaking to the patients. So what if they're saying something completely the opposite of what you're saying? That's gonna be a problem for you. So you need to understand what are the real needs, the real preferences, the real expectations of the patient community in order to better prepare yourself for those decision-making processes. I think as well, there, there have been some good strides forward throughout the world. Um, <clears throat> obviously the FDA have done, been doing quite a bit and also the European Commission as well, making some strides to ensure that companies are communicating with patients in a way that they actually understand. So one of the things, I don't know how many people are familiar when you, you look at clinicaltrials.gov or you look at the write-up of a, a study in a peer-reviewed journal, it's quite difficult to actually understand what that means if you're not tuned into the general language. And so therefore, one of the, the pieces of legislation that recently came out is that manufacturers now have to produce lay summaries of clinical data, which I think is a big move forwards to, to help actually companies really communicate to, to, the, to the patient community actually what they've done. <laughs> the only thing is that's once the clinical trial has been completed, that's not actually the important thing um, that Neil was talking about, which is making sure that they're listening to patients, understanding them before they get into the trial. And I've had um, also several uh, companies come to me and say, well, you know, we, we know that there are certain things that are important um, for us from the clinical community that they've said these things are important, but we don't know how to measure them. There's no validated tool that has been developed so far to measure these things. So then they slip back to the sort of the standard that they know has been approved, that they know has been accepted in various different HTA bodies. And they slip back into that sort of, you know, very vague evidence collection, which isn't really getting to the true challenges that, that people with those rare diseases are suffering. So I think you know, sometimes, especially if it is a new um, a new tool that needs to be developed, just get understand what, what that would take to actually develop it, because that in the end is, is likely to give you a better clinical advantage than just going down the bog standard route, where you're going to be really challenge to, to, to have a, a, a differential benefit. Um, so, so for me, it's more about, especially with some of these, these rare diseases, it's more about targeted and tailored trial development, targeted and tailored 
um, patient reported outcomes that are obviously extremely pragmatic and easy to use. And that just is not done properly at the moment. And I actually have a, a case study, um, uh, kind of a sort of health system perspective, um, that uh, in my capacity as a patient public voice partner on NHS England's um, advanced therapy medicinal products, um, patient and public involvement working group, um, we, um, the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, so the ABPI, they were developing their ATMP roadmap tools this was sort of a first of its kind interactive resource to help companies i mean it says what it does on the tin really but to help companies get their sort of new innovative products onto the market so this um atmp um ppi working group is obviously multi-stakeholder but there are individuals like myself living with long-term conditions that are informing um that practice and actually as a part of roadmap tool in the development they actually didn't have anywhere about the involvement of, of patients and their families as a part of that end-to-end -end treatment pathway. So I'm actually quite proud because we actually, they actually implemented that as one of their four principles, um, uh, uh, principles and sort of best practices. And that was communicated to over 300 ATMP manufacturers at a launch, a virtual launch event in December 2021. So it does show that there are there are systems and processes in place to kind of support the implementation of some of these kind of you know organization tools. And that's now actually sitting under the cell and gene therapy catapult. Um, and we've defined four subgroups, one which is focused on developing developing a charter for patient and public involvement as it relates to ATMPs, which we're currently in the process of scoping. Um, it's going to be quite a big exercise with lots of different stakeholders inputting into that. So, um, so yeah, watch this space. But I just want to kind of get a bit of an on-the-ground experience, really, of that kind of patient involvement. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And is there are you working on any kind of plans to share what you've been doing there with other countries? Uh, yeah. So I was going to say, Sophie, we actually, I, I was fortunate enough to publish an article through the ABPI mm -hmm. as a part of Rare Disease Day in February 2022, which was titled Moving Beyond Box Ticking and Lip Service, Why Patient Involvement Matters in a New Era of ATMPs for Rare Diseases. So I'd really encourage, obviously, listeners to, to go and check that out, because, again, I got colleagues to also inform that it wasn't just solely me but um but particularly at the moment where you know this um the ATMP working group is now sitting under the cell and gene therapy catapult I think there's ideas about how do we sort of broaden reach and engage stakeholders beyond the UK mm -hmm. to kind of show how how can patient involvement work you know yeah. that sounds like a great initiative any companies where we've got any examples where, where it's really worked versus where they haven't included the patient voice and maybe they haven't got their drug over the line? It's, it's hard to have individual examples because there's so many factors that, that feed into the success of a clinical programme, not least does the science work, for example. So, so I think patient involvement is a component of that because there is the, the patient-focused medicines development good, a book of good practices that lists and the case studies from a small and large pharmaceutical companies that have had patient involvement in their drug development processes that lists what they did and how it's worked out for them. It's really hard though to say, okay, that's the thing that took this over the line um, because there's so many other things in play. But what we can see is that those companies that 
are asking patients the right questions in the right way at the right time. They're avoiding costly mistakes. Um, so we do see that happening just generally. And you saw that in the stat I gave earlier from the Economist Intelligence Unit, more likely for launch success. And they had another stat within that same, um, within that same uh, piece, which was the time to recruit 100 participants. So non-patient-centric trials, that was about seven months on average. This was across urology, oncology, and rare diseases, um, four months for patient-centered clinical programs. So you can see it was nearly halving the time it took to recruit the patients, and it was making the, the um, chance of success much higher in terms of regulatory approval and launch. I am with Neil on, you know, it's it's difficult to pinpoint one thing, one activity, something that you should be doing. For me, it's far more fundamental than that. It's more about the culture of the organization. And that's what you do. It's not just, oh, I do this at one point in the drug development. It's the foundation of the whole company um, is all about making products, therapies, services for patients. That should be integrated and integral into everything that you think about and everything that you do and um i mean genzyme when it was genzyme obviously with with henry tamir at the ship that was absolutely what they did it was the mentality of the company and that culture literally fed through to every single person um whether it was somebody in manufacturing whether it was somebody in accounts or, or you know one, one of the medical team it was part and parcel of what they did and and you know if you are as i say a, a to hate these kind of terms that are bandied around without really meaning anything of, of patience. But if you want to do it, you need to actually make sure that everybody is thinking about that at the centre of, of, of everything that they do, not just one particular activity. I guess that leads us on to the, the, the big question, which is how can we bring all stakeholders together to work on completely new approaches to medicine approval and, and patient access? I think from my perspective, we have to first be really clear what the problem is we're trying to solve. So the thing that is the that I see is a really massive problem and it's only going to get worse is our success, our own success creates a massive problem. So we've been promoting patient empowerment, patient involvement. So the industry are now involving patients as they're developing their medicines. The regulators are now involving patients as they do their early scientific advice, early dialogue, right through the review process. Health technology assessment bodies are doing the same. So you imagine just one medicine, how many touch points are reaching out to patient organizations, basically to ask them the same question over and over again. So what we need is, you know, and I think you're absolutely right to ask this question, Ellen, is we need everybody to be working together. And that means that from the word go, we need a standard set of information or evidence that we're looking for for the patient community. And instead of holding that on to ourselves and saying, I'm special, that evidence is just for me, we need to be publishing that evidence broadly, almost immediately, so that we don't need to ask the same questions over and over again. We can ask new questions if we need to, but we don't need to ask the same questions over again. So we need bodies that are independent third-party bodies where regulators, HTA bodies, drug developers, patient groups, they all sit together and work this out, work what this future looks like and agree that they're willing to use each other's data. I agree. It sounds like a wonderful future to, to have. 
I'm just going to say one, one quote, actually, I've been working on a project with, um, his name's Dr. John Roberts, uh, London School of Economics, and he's involved in sort of social impact and outcomes. And he said a great quote, he said, evidence in, evidence out, evidence forward. And I think you kind of need to substantiate common sense as to why it's so important, why patient involvement is so important. And to Sophie's point that around kind of culture and ethos inside organisations, hosting an event where you get a you know someone with lived experience to come in and talk to the company isn't good enough <laughs> you know you need to demonstrate again how you're incorporating different voices I mean something we haven't actually really touched on is about um, uh, diversity and inclusivity as well and I think breaking down those barriers to engagement with with you know socially economically deprived members of the community and ethnic minority groups I mean it's super challenging I think every rare disease organization is struggling with that with that same battle but I think personally you know I'm so I'm, I'm really troubled with all the initiatives that I'm involved in how you know we're all white yeah you know and you know some of these diseases in particular have a disproportionate impact on black and ethnic minority groups where where are these where are these individuals to have their say so I think so much more work needs to be done to break down those barriers. Yeah. But I think that comes into that kind of the importance and a value driver of education. You know, how do we actually how do we support these individuals to build personal agency, develop health literacy to actually be onboarded into these programs, you know, to share those experiences. It's a long, it's a long term game. And I think you need, particularly within industry, you need people up the top in leadership you know, to, to, to have that kind of vision mm -hmm. and sponsor. So there's kind of, you know, there's sort of sustainable approaches to funding. This is over kind of a three, three to five year trajectory rather than that classic yearly funding round. So what, what initiatives, what services are you guys offering to help combat barriers for sustainable patient access? And Sophie, I'm going to hand that one over to you to start. Sure, yeah, thanks, Georgie. So we have um, a Partners for Access. We have a Patient and Caregiver Advisory Council. We've been talking a lot about patients. Um, we haven't necessarily talked so much about the caregiver, which could be a parent, um, which could be a child. Um, but that person is also involved in the disease and, and therefore their perspective is also really important as well. So one of the things that, that we do and we help companies with is to provide that perspective from the patient and the caregivers because pharmaceutical companies are limited in terms of what they can do with patients. You know, you can't just start phoning up patients and, and getting them in. Um, so there, there are certain rules and, and legislation and compliance which can dictate what they do. So we can help um, be that in between and, and sort of help them understand the different perspective and sort of ease that communication. Um, and also that, that obviously helps them understand. Literally, uh, we have something called Through My Eyes, which is all around understanding the day-to-day -day impact of, of having that disease and it's not just you know a patient journey where do they go how long does it take etc cetera, etc cetera, but really what is it like um, dealing with that disease and so Neil your example that you used there before about lipodystrophy that would be absolutely focused on unbelievable hunger pains you, you get that and then you know how to actually develop a, a clinical trial. So you're really addressing the true points that matter. So that's something I think that patient and caregiver advisory council that, that's very useful for companies that truly want to understand the patient and the caregiver perspective. So in, 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 terms of, in terms of my work, I guess I describe myself as a translator, not a translator of language, but a translator of stakeholders. 
most of my work is putting people in the same room together that don't normally talk or understand each other and say, let's just really understand why we can and can't do things from our own perspective. So very much work to bridge the gap between stakeholders' expectations. And a lot of my work is with patients and patient groups. Um, but in terms of initiatives, I actually want to talk about my voluntary work. You know, over half my time I, I, I do for voluntary work. And so patient-focused medicines development has built an excellent range of tools really for lots of stakeholders, but very much also for the industry of how you do patient engagement. What is the really good best practices? And I'll certainly share a link via chat so that you can point people towards that. So everything from how you organize patient engagement to how you ensure that your meetings are respectful of all the parties involved. How do you turn a scientific paper into something that is understandable by the, the lay public and the lay patients. So that's one range of tools, lots of tools there that you can just pick up and use there for free. The other one I want to point you to is the, is the work that I do with HTAI, which is the Global Scientific Society for Health Technology Assessment. I'm very much a part of their patient and citizens involvement group. They also have a lot of resources. And one I want to really sort of focus you in on is it's quite a new, a new resource called the Summary of Information for Patients. Now, can you believe it? When we invite patients to get involved in a health technology appraisal, we're not allowed to share any details of the treatment with the patients or the patient group. And so they're flying blind and they have to submit information and they have to look online and try to work out for themselves, what is this treatment? What do I think the indication is going to be? All of those kinds of things. So this is a new initiative started in Scotland, now being piloted around the world in various countries to say, can the HTA body provide unbiased information about the treatment and its indication so that patients and patient groups have as much knowledge as possible when they're submitting to a HTA process. So they're just two examples of how we can equip different stakeholders with the tools to get better at patient involvement, patient empowerment. Yeah, you've, you've sold it to me, Neil. Um, <laughs> I would, um, I, uh, I'm gonna go back to sort of one of my principles really, which is that like patient education is a, is a key pillar of effective self-advocacy and advocacy. Um, and activism at a broader level and a key value driver for better health outcomes. And I referred to Charlotte Williamson in her paper uh, towards the emancipation of patients, where she says, with a new knowledge and sense of direction, patient advocates and activists alike can identify new issues with taken for granted policies and practices or in introductions of new technology or new ways of doing things. But I think how we look to fund educational initiatives, this is me speaking now, how we look to fund educational initiatives should be allocated on a strong rationale for change, so i.e. needs-based, um, as well as consider ways to track and measure the short-term outcomes and long-term impact of such interventions, so evidence-driven. Um, and I'm working with one global commercial partner to reimagine how they look to sponsor and facilitate programmes that seek to overcome barriers to educational equity as it relates to novel innovation. I'm really excited, actually, by the potential of that, because it, it hasn't really been done before within the space that I operate. So, um, yeah, I'm really super passionate about that. And thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for letting me share and obviously just again be part of this. It's been great. The initiatives that are being offered 
it's, it's exciting for the future of patient involvement. But what I would really like to ask you is if I could give you a magic wand in the next three to five years, what changes would you like to see happening in patient involvement, Lawrence? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think more about how, particularly at a patient group level, how we look to link outputs and outcomes. You know, there is a lot of, um, you know, if, again, if I think about haemophilia specifically, you know, there's a lot of funding going on around different types of programs and, and you know, kind of support services, again, educational initiatives, whatever it might be, that's trying to encourage more involvement of people, again, across that sort of end-to-end -end pathway, but actually we don't know whether they're working or not. So I think I, I would just like to see kind of a change in that approach so that, again, there's a bit of accountability, really, one for the funding, predominantly which comes from industry, but to accountability of those stakeholders who are delivering those interventions. Are they working on or are they having any change or impact on people's outcomes and lives? We just don't know. So, yeah, that's what I'd really like to see. I think one of the most important things is aligning on the evidence needs. So aligning between regulators, HTA, healthcare system, payers, on what evidence do they need? So that instead of this fragmented approach, we have a much more consistent approach. And including with that, not just patient experience data, but patient experience data that is mandated to involve patient engagement. Patient experience data on its own is not gonna solve the problem for us. You need the patient engagement to have that working. So a systematic approach to evidence across the different decision makers um, and within that, having a requirement, you collect patient experience data alongside patient engagement. I'd say two things really. One is building up what, what Neil just said there. It's mandated is, is maybe a big word because I, I very much want it to be in the culture of the organisation, not that they're forced to do it, but they actually want to do it, that they would truly understand the patient and caregiver perspective before they start designing any clinical trial whatsoever, whether that's through initiatives like the Patient and Caregiver Council or other means, but they really truly understand that before they do anything. So that would be one. And the second is I'd like to see um, improvement in diagnosis through programs such as wider newborn screening, newborn screening programs across the world for a, a bigger variety of diseases. And then also as well, tapping into um, genetic testing, which really improves um, diagnosis as well. I mean, there's been lots of, of new studies that's been done on this, um, but to actually see that um, genetic testing, again, being expanded, not just where we have the genome testing, but really across the world, because I think that would make a, a huge difference um, to those people suffering with rare diseases. Thank you for those compelling contributions. Before we leave, has anyone got anything final to add to the discussion? We have to move beyond the idea that patient engagement, patient involvement is a nice thing to do and nice to have. It is already giving companies a competitive advantage when they do this right. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's in the interest of the industry to be doing this right now. And if they're not doing it, they're going to fall behind. So I think Neil has just summed it up amazingly here. Patient empowerment does give you a competitive edge as HTA bodies do take this into account. Thank you so much to my guests today for your insights and knowledge. And you heard it here first, folks. Patient empowerment 
and involving the patients at all stages of new drug development is a no-brainer. And if you're not doing it, then you're going to be left behind. Just to mention, Sophie and Neil will be presenting at the World Orphan Drug Congress in November this year. So guys, if you are attending, this is one not to miss. Really, really excited and looking forward to, to that. And if you would like more information on P4A's new patient and caregiver advisory council, please do reach out to us. Our contact links will be provided in the podcast description. Thank you so much for listening and see you next month.